Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Friday's edition of Coffee Talk Jazz Radio, where jazz is the order of the day. Today is Friday, October the 8th, 2010, and our intro music is entitled Chasing Eric by saxophonist Mr. John Wheatley, and his CD is called Angel, and it's available at cdbabyapp.com. Please pick up your copy today. If you're a first-time listener and new to Coffee Talk Jazz, Welcome. Our show call-in number is 1-347-934-0108. You're welcome to call the show and speak with our in-studio guests by pressing 1 and the pound sign on your phone so I can bring you live right into the studio. Our show link is www.blogtalkradio.com slash Lewis. Now, today's guest has been described as amazing, phenomenal, legendary, insightful. He's an arranger, producer, performer. He's iconic. He's all rolled into one. I'd like to welcome the newest member to the Copy Talk Jazz family, our friend, Mr. George Duke. Hello, George. How are you? Hi, Bridget. I'm doing fine. Good. Excellent. We are so excited that you're here, and thank you for coming. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I have so many questions for you, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> As everybody does, I yeah. know. I know. Most recently, um, you participated in the uh, Theonius Monk International Jazz Competition. Right. Um, that was on Monday, October the fourth. Can you tell our listening audience a little bit about uh, that particular event? Wow, that was a pretty big show. I've been a music director for most of their events, probably for the last ten years. Herbie Hancock is the president of the Thelonious Monk Institute, which is basically a school, and they offer actually free music programs for for students interested in jazz, uh, not only in the Washington, D.C. area, but also Los Angeles and New Orleans. And uh, this was a vocal competition this year, but it also contains a uh, uh, performance um, section of the program, or segment, I should say. And this year we had a lot of great vocals. We had uh, Diane Reeves there. We had Al Jarreau there. We had Kurt Elling there, uh, Patty Austin. Gladys Knight was a special guest. And this year's theme was um, um, the Great American Songbook. So we were doing a lot of the Gershwin and Hoagie Carmichael, et cetera, those kinds of songs. So, um, And a very deserving student won $20,000 scholarship. That is just amazing. And I know for that event that the gala also honored um, – the incomparable Aretha Franklin, because I know she's ranked as number one in Rolling Stone magazine on the list of the greatest singers of all time. So, well, yeah, unfortunately, you know, she had a little incident with her son in Detroit, uh, so she wasn't able to make it. So Gladys Knight actually filled in for her. So, uh, go, but Aretha will show up next year, and uh, <laughs> we'll have the honor for her next year. Well, that is just amazing. Now, the first question that I have for you would be: 
you were about four years old and your mother took you to see the late, great Duke Ellington. What kind of impact did that particular um, event have on your young life at that time? It, it was life-changing. I mean, to, to make a long story short, my mom took me to see uh, all kinds of artistic endeavors, you know, whether it was ballet, whether it was jazz, whether it was gospel concerts, you know, musicals, whatever. She just wanted me to be exposed to the arts. One day she took me to see this guy named Duke Ellington. Now, I thought he was a relative because his name was Duke. <laughs> but I found out later that wasn't the true Uncle, Uncle Duke, you know. So I found out people were smiling and, and clapping, and, you know, and there were all these people on stage, and he was dressed very well, and he spoke what I call today the King's English, but at the same time he sounded like the guys around my neighborhood, and he was doing something with his hands, which I later found out he was playing the piano. And every time he'd raise his hands, he looked like he was waving. This magic would happen. And I'm like, wow, this is magic. Just the other guy started playing just by him waving his hand while he was conducting. So all of these things wrapped into to this one character kind of made me say, you know what, I want to be like him. I want to do that. I don't know what he's doing. I don't understand it, but I want to do it. Amazing. Composer big band leader, prominent figure in the history of jazz. I mean, his uh, musical repertoire was just amazing. And oh, he yeah. covered the blues, the gospel, the film scores, um, classicals. I mean, just like yourself. So he was a, he was an amazing, an amazing figure. Um, yes. More questions for you. I want to talk about your newest and your current project, Deja Vu. And uh, you've played on several tracks. And I want to know, how does this particular project, which recently came out, how's, how does it differ from some of your other um, works in the past? Well, um, in, in certain ways. You know, this, this album is kind of a look back at some styles that I grew up loving over the years. Um, probably a little more instrumental than the, the previous album, which was kind of a look back as well, but it was a little more towards the right. It was a little more towards the funk side and all of that. Not to say that there isn't some funk on this record, but it's a little more towards the jazzy kind of funk stuff. So I, I wanted to revisit some old instruments uh, and really utilize them along with new digital instruments. I'm talking about everything from a uh, well, I won't get into detail about the particular instruments, but these, these synthesizers, like a mini-mogul or an arp where you can only play one note at a time, and they cough and buzz and sputter, and, you know, and, and you, it's hard to keep them in tune. And, you know, it's all of those kinds of things that were really a drag back in the day, but give your music such a, a tremendous personality. That's really what I wanted to do on this album is combine old instruments with the new digital synthesis and uh, really with using new songs, composing new songs, write them with the uh, intent of what we had back in the day in the 60s and 70s, both lyrically and musically. But And, and you know, rather than just going into it using the old songs of the past, use the styles of the past and write new songs. That's kind of what this album is about. Well, it's beautiful. So right now what I'd like to do, George, is I'm just going to go ahead and go to the boards, and we're going to take a listen at one of the tracks uh, on uh, the CD, and it's entitled Stupid Is As Stupid Does. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that title. Here we go. Let's take a listen, shall we? Okay.
Hour back broadcasting live from Los Angeles, and you listen to the very best here uh, in Blog Talk Radio here at Coffee Talk Jazz. And you're on live with the legendary, iconic Mr. George Duke. Now, I heard funk, I heard rock, I heard punk, <laughs> I heard everything. That was incredible. Please tell me a little bit about the title, though, <clears throat> and about the music. Well, the uh, um, this song was done in kind of like uh, – the way they used to do, the way we used to do jazz records, so to speak, where everybody plays a solo. Uh, there's a lot of music being made now where basically the leader of the record or the group kind of does everything, and everybody else is kind of in a, a subcategory in terms of, of support. Uh, but this, I wanted everybody to have a place to shine. I think that's kind of like the old records. The, the title is basically based on my drummer, who's a young guy, uh, at the time, I think he was about 26 when we did this. I met him when he was 23, and he used to always do a lot of stupid things. He was young, kind of like me when I was his age, you know. And so I said, you, I told him one day, I said, you know, stupid is a stupid does. So I said, hey, you know what? That's a good title for this song. And then he said, no, you're not going to call it that, are you? I said, yes, I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that. That explains it. I used to hear growing up, my mother say, what pretty is, is pretty does, and stuff, and I've never heard that. Well, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Thank you for the clarification. You're welcome. Now, you, um, your songs have been used by a wide variety of contemporary musicians in a wide array of genres. Does it surprise you that you have such an impact on other artists and performers from all walks of life? I know well, that's a really long and loaded question, I know. <laughs> Well, the you know, I've always tried to wear a lot of, be me, but wear a lot of different color hats. You know, it's, it's no different than um, wanting to, uh, you know, for I'll give you an example. I mean, I love pasta, right? I love pasta. But I don't want to eat pasta every day, you know. Um, so that that sort of the same way with music for me and the songs that I write. I try to, to do all kinds of things, not just solely in the jazz medium, but in, in other mediums as well. I kind of take the Star Trek phenomenon, what's what's out there with that star to the left. I want to, you know, explore. You know, musicians used to be explorers, you know, audio explorers or style explorers. Uh, I grew up in a time when it was really important to try to combine styles together, Very like jazz musicians working with rock musicians, rock musicians working with with Latin musicians, whatever. And growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I could hear that, and I was exposed to that. I said, wow, that, this is interesting. What would happen if we combined rock with jazz or rock with Latin or, or whatever? And so that, it's really the same thing. It's all stemming from the same place. And so I write songs for different people. That's, that's fine, different styles. Uh, I, I like to say I work with everybody from Barry Manilow to Miles Davis, sure. and I love it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of that, I'm going to mention a couple of names. Just tell me the first thing uh, that comes to mind, Duke Ellington. Genius. <laughs> okay, that's good. I know one of your major influences, Frank Zappa, American composer, electric guitarist, film director, rock, jazz, organizational uh, music videos, Um he was highly a highly prolific artist, gaining widespread critical acclaim for a lot of his albums, and he was just essential in rock and jazz history. So tell me, how had uh, uh, Frank's music um, inspired you and influenced you? 
Wow, it's it's a that's a long story. And the, the, <laughs> the short yeah. version. Okay, we only have an hour short. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to, to to make a long story short, it's uh, it very 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 important. I mean, when I first joined uh, the Mother's Invention, it was uh, I was a young jazz player, and that's kind of all I wanted to know. You know, Scooby Doo kind of stuff. I, I wore these black suits with these thin black ties and a white shirt and was very conservative on that level, you know, uh, pretty much introverted musically. Uh, and I didn't really understand why he was interested in having me in this band, but he must have seen something in me that I didn't see mm-hmm. and uh, something he could bring out. And so he kept encouraging me, not not demanding, but encouraging me to, for example, to to sing, he says. I he says. First of all, he said, I need you to sing this note because you're the only one, the stationary. You're behind this keyboard. Everybody else is running around doing something else. I need you to sing this note. And so it started like that. Then eventually, he says, Okay, I need you to sing the solo line. So uh, you should play synthesizers. Um, you should learn to use your humor. Let your humor work for you. You should come out from behind those keyboards. And take what you feel to the audience. I mean, come to the front of the stage. Find a way to to do that. You know, all kinds of things. The synthesizer thing was very important in the singing. By him encouraging me to do that, he's the only one that did that. That's just incredible. And I know that he was uh, posthumously in, uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame mm-hmm. uh, in 1995, and he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1997. Because I know he passed away in 1993. I know he was a tremendous influence. On your life, so thank you for sharing um, that story um, with us. Now, there was a young singer by the name of Algero, and the two of you formed a group which became the house band of San Francisco Half Note Club. Tell us a little bit about working with uh, the incomparable Algero. Well, Al, uh, <laughs> and we've been doing some dates recently too, but I tell you, uh, kind of coming full circle. Al used to come in on Sunday afternoons when I had a trio working at this club, and he would just blow every other singer away. It was like a jam session. You know, there'd be sax players and trumpet players, but there'd be always a line of singers just lined up. And Al would be one of these guys. And eventually uh, the club owner said, you know what, this guy really can sing. He says, what do you think if he came and sang with your band on the weekends? So I said, hey, man, I love Al. He's cool. And we began a relationship, a musical relationship at that point, and writing songs and and everything. It was a wonderful experience for a couple of years, really both of us honing our craft. And Al wasn't, I mean, I was in school as an undergraduate at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. He he wasn't even in the music business full-time. He was a, a psychologist. <laughs> wow, so, that I didn't know. Yeah, so that's that that long ago. So we we made tapes, we sent it out to every record label known to man, and we were all summarily dismissed by everyone, saying we don't need anybody. Goes scooby dooby dooby doo. We don't need anybody doing that, and we don't need a, a young piano player to play that many notes. So, uh, but I still have those tapes, and uh, <laughs> Al and I are working on it right now, and probably sometime at the beginning of next year. Well, we will release this at least uh, at our live shows because we began doing some algebra with George Duke Trio shows again. Amazing. As an aside from our own bands. Wow. That is really something. Now, you were talking about um, that um, Al was actually a psychologist and you were actually um, receiving your undergrad degree from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and so you received that degree. You majored in uh, trombone composition with a minor in contralto bass, and you received that degree in '67. 
and you went on to also receive your master's degree um, as well. Yes. What um, what sage advice would you give to some of the new kids on the block that are out there? They love music. They think, hey, they've got it. They think, okay, well, you know, I don't necessarily need an education. What mm. would you really share? Yeah, I heard that in your voice. I hear it coming through. What <laughs> advice? What sage would you share with them, uh, George? Well, if you if you want longevity, if you love music and you want to be in it for the long term, you need a thorough background because uh, an education in music can only further your, the, your depth so that you're able to be more pliable. When when the wave blows you one way, you'll be able to withstand it a little better because your talent is built on a, a firm foundation. I think what's important is, is that uh, a gift is not enough. You know, a gift is a wonderful thing, but without development, the gift doesn't reach its potential. And so the main thing is to find out as much as you can about how music is constructed and how it's made, and that will make you better able to express what you want to express. And then from there, you find out how to be an individual. You get all the nuts and bolts down in school, learning, you know, an A from a B flat, what makes this chord work versus that one. Get all that together, and then eventually you'll be able to find out who you are and express that, and that's what separates you from everybody else and puts your spoke in the wheel of musical life. Well, that is sage advice, and I'm going to take some of that for myself. Now what I'm going to do is we're going to go ahead and go to the boards, and we're going to listen to another track um, from your latest CD, A Ripple in Time. Let's take a listen. Here we go.
Broadcasting live from Los Angeles with our in-studio guest today with Mr. George Duke. Now, that was a complete departure from the first song that we heard. And when I first heard it, I wasn't really sure which direction it was going. And it was very interesting. It kind of reminded me of something for a film score. It kind of sounded like a space odyssey at the, at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about uh, that particular song. Well, you know, um, uh, I did work with Miles towards the, the end of his life. Um, working on songs for the Amanda album as well as Tutu, and this was kind of a, uh, a a nod to that, you know, to that period of his career when a lot of people kind of said, well, he wasn't being creative, you know. But, but Miles changed the d- direction of music easily five times during his lifetime, and this was one where he he, he liked the idea of uh, being able to still be Miles, different styles, but still Miles underneath different hats. You know, and this music was still very creative, but he could do whatever he wanted over a funky, funky kind of beat with with the piano player doing whatever they wanted, playing strange chords and this and that. And that's kind of a homage to that period. Um, 
some of the ideas obviously come from uh, some of the work that I've done in film, no doubt about it, you know, um, because I, I like the idea of, of trying to create a mood based on what you see, because a lot of music is, is based on that. I mean, what you feel is very important, too, but it's all connected. And so uh, that's really all it is. I, I guess in, in a short, it's probably just an excuse to write some strange music. <laughs> After all, after all, saying all of that, <laughs> I have more questions for you, George. Um, I tell you, there's so much information. Please promise me that that you're going to come back for part two because there's just so much to cover in one hour. I just need you probably for like a half a day. Now, you have received um, Grammy winner, gold, platinums, all kinds of certifications. Um, were you completely surprised? Or are you completely surprised by your success? Well, uh, I guess it, it is kind of strange in, in certain respects. Uh, I never really expected anything from from a music career. Didn't wasn't sure, especially in the beginning, whether I could make a living doing it. Uh, I didn't know if I was good enough. Uh, that was always a question. Whether I could make a living was always a a question. Uh, I mean, right up to uh, to the current day, you know, where where the music business has become so strange, you know. Fortunately, I built up an audience where I can still go work live, and the whole paradigm of the record industry has changed. And now, um, owning my own label, basically being responsible for my own music, fortunately being distributed by by Concord and Heads Up, uh, which is which I think is very important. They're doing such a a great thing for music. I mean, it's uh it's, it's incredible. I think and uh, so that that helps a lot, you know. But uh, yeah, it's scary not knowing what's going to happen, you know. But you got to learn to ride the waves, and I think the education really helps with that. And of course, if bad came to worse, I could always go teach school, <laughs> you know. Because not not I shouldn't say it like that. Bad come to worse, but I mean it's uh, I, I, my my goal was to actually play live in front of people. That 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 was the main goal, is to watch get the immediate reaction from an audience. Okay. Um, and speaking of playing live, um, if someone wanted um, you to, if someone actually like wanted to book you, there's the, the George Duke Band and there's the George Duke Orchestra yep. and uh, there's the George Duke um, Quartet. So right. um, just to let our listening audience know, um, he's available for those kinds of things. Now, um, I'm going to throw a couple more names out for you hmm. and tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Stanley Clark. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> now, Stanley Clark is like my buddy. He, he's like the younger brother I never had. He's a fabulous musician, um, probably as diverse or maybe even more diverse than me, uh, interested in playing all kinds of styles of music, as very much like Frank Zappa. I guess I like those kind of musicians that kind of span a lot of different styles and style almost is irrelevant you know it's just one dimensional okay. yeah yeah i like guys that are multi-dimensional you know and so stanley is definitely that he plays upright bass electric bass rock jazz funk all of that and even and things a little bit vocals wow <laughs> amazing amazing okay another name i'll throw out for you would be um jean-luc ponte ah jean-luc Jean-Luc Ponty, yes, a fabulous violinist for France that actually gave me my start in the business, so to speak. During the time that I was working with Al Jarreau, the Half Note Club, 
uh, Jean-Luc, who's, who's, who's absolutely fabulous violinist, as, as me as a teenager, he said, let's give this kid a shot. I sent tapes down saying I, I found out he was coming to the United States to do an album. I said, man, I got the group to play with this guy because I used to hear him on K-Jazz in the Bay Area. And uh, I said, I want to play with this guy. And so uh, I figured that would be as close as I was going to get to Miles Davis, you know. <laughs> Well, uh, so he said, let's give, based on the, the tapes I sent down, he said, let's give the kid a shot. And by playing with him, in the, especially in the Los Angeles area, you know, Quincy Jones, Frank Zappa, Gerald Wilson, you're on, and a lot of different jazz musicians, <clears throat> and, and just heavy heavyweights in the LA, LA area would come to see us play, and I just happened to be there playing. And so I eventually began to play on other records, and that kind of launched my career. Amazing, because he toured the world just as you have repeatedly, and he recorded 12 consecutive albums, um, which all reached the top five on the Bill uh, Jazz uh, charts, and he sold millions and millions of records um, just as you have. Now, speaking of young talents, if someone says, you know what, I can sing, I play um, different instruments, and I want someone to produce me, how would you really direct a young person? I know educationally you would say, you know, go to school and, you know, get your degrees and everything. But, you know, if they're just very gifted, very talented, they need someone to produce them, you know, to kind of lead them and guide them, what advice would you give to them? Or how would you direct them to really get into this business? Wow, that's a good question, uh, especially now that the paradigm has changed. <clears throat> I think that it helps to build a base wherever you are. I think uh, word of mouth is very strong. Um, for me, I don't think much has changed uh, from when I came up. I, I played with Al Jarreau at the Half No Club for two and a half, three years. And as a result of that, they gave me a, a home base to work from. We developed a, a following within the local area. People knew who we were, and we started sending out tapes, and then word started spreading. You know, it's like it's viral. It's like a, a good cancer, you know. And so it's, uh, if you can develop a good local following, and it always helps to play live because one, if you if you, you know, if, if you play live, you get immediate feedback over what you're playing, and then that, that affects what you're going to record, you know, later on. So I think that that's that's the main thing, and then eventually when you figure you got you got your craft together and you're ready, invite some people down from from a local label or or however you want to do it, or if you want to do it on your own and Put it, just put it out on the Internet. You can do it that way. There are other ways to do it now besides going to a major or an independent record label. And so the main thing is to have your act together. And by playing live and developing a local following, uh, once you reach that point, it can, it can only help because you start getting the feel of what it's like to get over to an audience. You learn how to become, you know, uh, to sell yourself, so to speak. Okay. Well, that was sage advice. So for all of our listeners, um, you're hearing it from the best, the iconic and legendary Mr. George Duke. So if you're out there and you can sing and you play multiple instruments, you're multidimensional, and you're really thinking about getting in this business, you have to get your education um, first and then really uh, pull your own audience in and take them from there. So that was really good advice. Now, um, George, what would you say your greatest success has been? Because you've had so wow. many. You're my greatest musical success? Musical success. Well, in terms of record sales, I, I, that would obviously be uh, probably a cross between, uh, uh, my biggest hit was probably Sweet Baby, overall across the board. 
which was a big pop hit, jazz hit, and, and uh, that kind of thing. R&B, actually, number one record. But I think uh, probably record sales-wise, it was Reach For It, which was a funk tune that kind of developed out of the D.C. area, out of a drum solo. You know, that I just happened to go in the studio and say, hey, you guys remember this groove? And they said, yeah, and we played it, and all of a sudden, it wasn't meant to be a hit record, but it became a hit record. And uh, so that's probably my biggest success as my records. In terms of production, we're talking about a list here for the boy uh, that I produced for uh, Denise Williams, which I think sold for over 13 million. <clears throat> or records like that, or what I did with A Taste of Honey, which sold a couple of million on Tsukiyaki, a single. Two million records on a single, that's pretty amazing. Um, so those were the big successes. Musical successes, I think, might go a different area. Um, you know, there, there's some things like uh, the Muirwood Suite, which I wrote some years ago. It was commissioned by Quincy Jones and, and Claude Knobs from the Montreal Festival. That, for me, was a big deal, <clears throat> which I still perform from time to time with various orchestras. Uh, for me, that was a musical success, combining jazz with a, a symphony orchestra. That is good stuff. Okay, now my next question is, what's the toughest lesson um, you've learned about the music business over time. Hmm. Boy, you got the questions, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you are the man for the job. <laughs> well, the toughest lesson. I've learned a lot of them. You know, um, personally, mm -hmm. I think once you reach a certain point, uh, I hate to even say this, but I, I, I do believe in ownership of what you do. Um, it, it's, but it's, it's very difficult to do that when you're a young artist and you're, you're starving. So I, I don't, I, I don't want to say that, but I want to throw that in the mix. You know, and uh, I think one, one thing I was fortunate enough to not have done in my early career was give up my publishing. And that's very tempting for a lot of artists. A lot of my friends did it because they wanted to get the cash and they gave up their publishing to some big company and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I was lucky not to fall into that trap, you know, until I was ready to fall into that trap, you know. <clears throat> so, but uh, the biggest, the, probably the, the the biggest lesson I learned is probably kind of funny, but it wasn't it wasn't funny at the time. Is to not stand so close to the edge of the stage. <laughs> so was that like a oops? See you laugh. <laughs> well, I fell off stage a few times. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, it was it was kind of crazy. I mean, I close my eyes. I have this instrument I wear on my neck, and a couple of times, I, I just play. I close my eyes, really getting into it, and I take a step forward, and I was like, "Whoa, there's nothing there." What <laughs> <laughs> air? And there, was, and there was no wireless then. It was a wire, so I was like, "Oh my God, is this the end?" <laughs> so uh, yeah, I fall off the stage. So that's the that's a good lesson. When you get on stage, don't stand too close, or don't drink any wine. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Oh my goodness! So my next question. That's that's really good. Um, how would you say that a musician should prepare for the lean years when he's not getting the calls? Yeah, that's a good one. A lot. And most musicians don't, or they just you know they're living day to day. There's so many musicians that are out of work now. Great, great musicians too. Uh, a lot of the good ones here now are working the, the Dancing with the Stars or the TV shows and all of that, uh, which is a good thing. How to prepare? Uh, for me, you know, I, I managed to, to find some, some way to uh, have a, a pension plan, 
You know, I mean, I prepare for that, and with with, with all of that, try to sock some money away, you know, if you can. And so that's the that's the one thing. I think it always helps if you have an education to have some kind of depth where you can move into another area of music. I think being a performer is a wonderful thing, but you know what? You better have more eggs in your basket than that. And <laughs> it's just like the money market. The more diverse you are, the better off you're going to be to be able to continue making a living uh, the way you desire to. And so that means, if that means teaching, that means teaching. If it's if it's in a school or whether it's independently, you know, uh, that can you can also make a lot of money from that. You better learn how to write and get your material out there. And you can't just hold on to it. If somebody writes a song, a lot of them say, "I got a great song," but they don't send it to anybody, so nobody gets a chance to hear it. It's, it's a and then they may not know exactly the way to get it to someone. That's a, that's another area. But uh, it helps to be able. For me, I went into production. At one point, when the whole disco movement came in, I said, well, I better find another way to make a living here. So I began producing records, and fortunately I had some success. So there are other areas of music. Hey, you, if you can't play it, then maybe you can write about it, or maybe you can do what you do, or maybe you can talk about it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of other areas of music other than performance. Sure, sure, I definitely understand. And having those multiple streams of, of income, when you said Absolutely. that not only do I – you know, produce the show, but I also write, I don't write any music, but I actually write books and speak and host and things of that nature. So I understand, and everything that you're sharing, believe me, I'm going to incorporate that into my own life. So I appreciate the, the sage wisdom. I really, really do. Um, I have one more question for you, and then we're going to go to the boards and listen to another song. With all those beautiful Grammys that you receive, first of all, I want to know, where do you house your Grammys? And oh, well, sure, go ahead. Um, I was say, where do you house your Grammys? I probably should ask the question the other way. Let me ask you. Let me ask it this way: How did you feel when they called your name and you got your first Grammy? You were nominated and you received your first Grammy. What did that feel like? Well, you know, it, it was kind of interesting because actually the Grammys that I've won were not as an artist. I've won as a producer, um, and and and. Uh, it's really kind of interesting that way because I've been nominated, I don't know, what, 10, 12, 13, 14 times. I got a lot of nominations on my wall as an artist and for or for a record or all of that. But only as a producer have I won uh, some Grammys, and that's with my cousin Diane Reeves, who I produced. And uh, what it felt like, I was I probably was more happy for her because <laughs> she's family. And uh, just to see her walk up there and just, you know, it was just a wonderful thing. But that I have not shared because I've not won as an artist, which is kind of interesting as long as I've been in the business. But I didn't get in the business to win Grammys. So yeah. the, the more important for me is to see, want me be able to really connect with something that, that I've said in a song that really registers with someone, that someone will come up to me and say, hey, you know what? This song that you wrote, blah, 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 like no rhyme, no reason, for example, say you wrote this song has touched me and has, like, stayed with me for my life. That, That is, like, that's gold. Yeah. That's gold. And Grammys don't pay the rent, you know. Uh, uh, but that person who continues to buy my records and come to my shows, that's gold. And that's, that's a direct connection, which is very important. I appreciate you for really keeping it real there because uh, earlier this week uh, I was in studio with Peter White and he said something along the same line, lines I had shared with him that um, his particular CD 
Perfect Moments, which was done in the 90s, was just the record that just really got me through a very tough time. And he says that for him means more than the money and the fame and the travel and everything else. He said just the fact that I've connected and that I've really touched a life, I've touched a heart. He said, and that's really what this music is all about. That's right. Yeah, so it's just it's good stuff. So we're going to go ahead and go to the boards, and we're going to play Come to Me. Let's take a listen. Here we go.
And we are back broadcasting live from Los Angeles with our in-studio guest, Mr. George Duke. And my apologies, George, for cutting that song just a little bit short. That's okay. I can't believe that we've come um, close to the end of the hour. I just want to make a really quick announcement, and then I have one more question for you. Okay. Um, for our listening audience, just want you all to be aware that we have the incredible um, vocalist, Annette Phillips, who is coming to Coffee Talk Jazz Radio on Tuesday, October the 12th. She is a songwriter, lyricist, composer, and a teacher, and she comes out of Berkeley um, School of Music. So she's going to be here on Tuesday, October 12th at 3 o'clock. Now, the last question that I have for you would be, what do you want people to know most about Mr. George Duke? Well, probably that I love what I do. I think that's probably pretty obvious and it's pretty simple. Uh, I, I'm not very complex on, on a certain level. You know, it's uh, I love music and I, I love it, it doesn't matter what style. I'm not really interested in a particular style of music. Uh, uh, people can call it what they want, whether it's smooth jazz or or funk jazz or Latin jazz. I, I'm not into labels. I, I just want to cr- create the music that I feel led to create. And so that's uh, probably if they had to know anything about me is that the music I do make, whatever style it is, uh, is, is, is honest. I mean, it's because I, I wanted to make that music. It's honest and pure. And I want to thank very much um, Mike Wikopotsky. Oh, Will Pazeski. Yes, his last name incorrectly. Please forgive me, Mike. I'm sorry. For Jasper Felicity out of New York, uh, he connected uh, George and I. And please thank Corinne, your manager, and I thank you so much um, for giving us this opportunity um, to interview here on Coffee Talks Jazz Radio. I've been a tremendous fan over the years. I will continue to support your music uh, and play your music here on the show. And I just want to thank you so very much for being our in-studio guest today. Okay, Bridget. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And we're going to go ahead and uh, take it out with Rippling Time. Here we go.
that, you know, wasn't so prominent. I mean, but those two, I mean, have won awards and have traveled the globe. I forgot to ask him about his frequent flyer, my hope. That was going to be like one of my funny questions. Yeah, because he, he did just get back from uh, from New York. And I didn't know that Diane Reeves was his cousin. I didn't know that. Diane Reeves, the jazz singer. Yes. 